Let's do one more. This one's titled, I don't have enough good words. Exclamation point five stars. Amy Marie 18. So wonderful. Thank you guys for taking this on. That was good. That was good, Steve. So thanks for leaving that review. You guys, please, it would help us so much if you would leave a rating and or review wherever you listen to this podcast. Okay. Uh, somebody do something funny so that we have that moment oh, before gosh. the start of the episode and then we'll... I need a burp or something. That'll... No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> the old armpit fart. There it was. That'll work. There's that line right there. From Milieu Media Group, this is Fun Parts. An exploration of sexuality and spirituality for anyone who's curious or convinced there must be more. With your hosts, Becky Patton, Latifa Alatas, Ashley Lusink, Steve Weens, and me, Luke Bronner. I was on the plane yesterday flying here and I was reading Rilke's On Love and Other Difficulties. Does anybody here read Rilke at all? Sometimes. I'm totally unfamiliar. Okay, so Rilke's brilliant, German poet, amazing. I read a year or two ago a very short book he wrote called Letters to a Young Poet and it was just stunning. Like it was so stunning. And so I did this on vacation. While I was on that vacation, I picked up Rilke On Love and Other Difficulties and I finally started it yesterday on the plane thinking this is going to be like poems about love, things, you know, did not realize the extent to which it would get into not just our sort of content, both the sexual and spiritual, the shame, kind of the things that we tend to talk about a lot. And this was in the first chapter of the book. I wanted to share it with y'all. He says, why are we not set in the midst of what is most mysteriously ours, how we have to creep round about it and get into it in the end, like burglars and thieves. We get into our own beautiful sex in which we lose our way and knock ourselves and stumble and finally rush out of it again, like men caught transgressing in the twilight of Christianity. Why, if guilt or sin had to be invented because of the inner tension of the spirit, why did they not attach it to some other part of our body? Mm. Why did they let it fall on that part, waiting till it dissolved in our pure source and poisoned and muddied it? Why have they made our sex homeless instead of making it the place for the festival of our competency. Wow. That's so good. Wow. Very well. I will allow that it should not belong to us who are not able to answer for and administer such inexhaustible bliss. But why do we not belong to God from this point? A churchman would point out to me that there is marriage, although he is not unaware of the state of affairs in respect to that institution. It does not help either to put the will to propagation within the sphere of grace. My sex is not directed only toward posterity. It is the secret of my own life. And it is only, it seems, because it may not occupy the central place there, that so many people have thrust it to the edge and thereby lost their balance. What good is it all? The terrible untruthfulness and uncertainty of our age has its roots in the refusal to acknowledge the happiness of sex. In this peculiarly mistaken guilt, which constantly increases separating us from the rest of nature, even from the child, although his, the child's, innocence does not consist at all in the fact that he does not know sex, so to say, 
but that incomprehensible happiness which awakens for us at one place deep within the pulp of a close embrace is still present anonymously in every part of his body. In order to describe the peculiar situation of our sensual appetite, we should have to say, once we were children in every part, now we are that in one part only. But if there were only one among us for whom this was a certainty, and who is capable of providing proof of it, why do we allow it to happen that generation after generation awakens to consciousness beneath the rubble of Christian prejudices, and moves like the seemingly dead in the darkness, in a most narrow space, between sheer abnegations. So true to the heart of what we have discussed here of like, why has this thing that is so good, why have we allowed it to become such a source of shame and a topic that we're afraid to discuss freely? There's so many different quotes in there that I just nuggets that I want to hold on to, but it's like that was written in the 1800s. Is that right? Late 18 or early 1900s. Are you serious? So can yeah. we just pause and notice that first yeah. oh, that and say, it, it does. It makes me sad too, that this is not a new thing to be talked about. It's not like we have this new concept. And that's one of the things that I think when I first started researching, like how did we separate sexuality? How did it get so separated from spirituality? I would find some of these older quotes and I was like, oh, I'm not discovering anything new. I'm just actually saying something out loud. And that's where I think the sacredness of that is, why didn't that become a bestseller? Mm. And I'm thinking of some of the other gems that I found that were just these obscure books that I found somewhere that some mystical or spiritual writer had written. And why didn't that become? Because I think it went against a system that was systemically working in helping to get allegiance. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the allegiance has cost us so much. It's cost us embodiment mm. and it's cost us the absence of being able to be present to what's going on. Just even physically, like when you have a cold, how many times do you have, let's take the medicine that just kills the symptoms because I got to get back out there and do this thing. And I think because sex is such an intimate thing and sex is such an awakening thing that when we try and kill off smaller things, we've learned the tools to kill off the bigger things hmm. that are sensual. Yeah. I love the way he described, he says, why have we made sex homeless? Like it, someone has taken this thing that is entirely mine. He refers to it as my sex and they have made it a source of shame. You know, they've made it a thing that can no longer live within me. I love that language that, you know, why have we made sex homeless? I'm thinking about how we've particularly about religion. I mean, it's probably not just Christianity, but since that's a lot of our touch point for how we grew up around this table. So the allegiance to the Christianity or whatever faith system that's maybe asking you to, in essence, cut a part of yourself off that is directly connected to your spirituality. Like, I feel like we have all these people, myself included for a lot of my life, and I'm still learning how to reattach it all. Like walking around with parts of themselves completely cut off and fragmented. And that is so tragic. And I'm thinking about people I know in the queer community. This feels like such a clear cut example of saying like your attraction, your desire is ungodly and incorrect and will separate you from God. And so in order for you to not be separated from God, we're going to need you to separate yourself. And like in the same breath, we'll say, 
that human beings are divinely inspired, God breathed in images of God. It doesn't make any sense that then you would ask somebody to then cut that part of themselves off. Doesn't that part also represent the image mm-hmm. of God? It just, it's so violent when I think about it. Like the idea of just literally separating yourself, a part of yourself that is so informative and so life-giving to the other part of yourself. And so like, I'm thinking about myself and my spiritual life and how much more embodied I feel spiritually and connected to all things and to myself and to people. I feel more compelled to speak up when I think things are unjust. I feel more invigorated in the spiritual part of my life. And I think a lot of that has been deeply connected to me accepting my sexual reality of who I am, even as that shifts and change as well. You know, like I talked about in our intro episode about how like my spiritual life is like Becky's house. Like I've taken a few pieces of furniture and like kind of shifted it around, but that's been a big part of my sexual identity as well. How I experience sex, how I enjoy sex, how I understand sex. That's even shifting again with pregnancy, you know? And so like, if we just tell people they have to be completely void of that part of their life, like we're asking people to walk around like half dead. And that just feels really wrong. And you, you talked about, you know, why would we sever this part of us that so integrates with our spirituality, but it also, is like, it's the place within us where we, we can most easily access our own vulnerability where, you know, we've talked a lot about sex being a source of comfort, a, a way of like comforting deep wounds. And it's like, so to sever yourself from the relief that is sort of built in. Mm -hmm. You were talking about that image of homeless. And I have so many different images of homeless that, you know, come to mind. But one is we once were in a home and now we are homeless. And so it's not that the person has, the person is something, we're making sex something that's not about part of their humanity. It's like something they can leave. I just don't think we can leave the humanity of being sexual beings. My concern is if we're asking people, and especially like if we're asking people to deny from the queer community, if we're asking them to deny that part of themselves and cut that part out in order to be quote unquote spiritual, we're asking them to cut out one of the core elements of what it means to be human. And so somehow we're making spiritual, if you're spiritual, you're somehow not quite as human or to be human, you're not spiritual. And I just actually think you as a human being, you are spiritual. And so I don't think we need to have more bloodied amputees Mm -hmm. in order to be more holy. We need whole people getting to have people help repair some of those wounds that have inadvertently been made. And it just irks me to no end that there again, there's another example. This message has been out there for a very long time and yet it's ignored. So I'm a little riled up right now. Just a little riled up. Okay. But what I'm really riled up with is we're asking people to deny the authenticity of how they've been created. And that I don't think is ever right. Ever. Ever. Can you, there is a part in there referencing a child, like Mm -hmm. at the beginning. Can you do that part again? Yeah. What good is it all? The terrible untruthfulness and uncertainty of our age has its roots in the refusal to acknowledge the happiness of sex and this peculiarly mistaken guilt which constantly increases, separating us from the rest of nature, even from the child. Although his, the child's, innocence does not consist at all in the fact that he does not know sex, so to say, but that incomprehensible happiness, which awakens for us at one place deep within the pulp of a close embrace, is still present anonymously in every part of his body. 
there is like so much to unpack in this that I, I'm like kind of my mind's still a little bit reeling. But I just keep thinking about this experience of being a mother. And so much of my work up to this point has been like going back and trying to reclaim my own experience, right? Like, and not really knowing what my early years were like and whatever, and having like just distant memories of that. But now to be with someone at the very beginning of her life and witnessing like just the sponge that they are at this phase, right? The thing I keep coming back to is how like we've been breastfeeding for we're at like 17 months into our journey of that. And it's been a, quite a wrestle at the beginning and whatnot, but how the comfort that's there in it and how what's really struck me is how much we talk about sex being comfort, right? Like we go back to this place yes. and how in our bodies, how else do you learn safety in your body? Because for me, it took until probably like age 36, 35 to like experience that safety there, mm -hmm. like to know that feeling, like to let my nervous system come down to a place of like, this is truly rest. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like my nervous system has been in fight or flight probably since the beginning, just knowing some of my familial history. And so one of my biggest things with my daughter is like how to help create a space where what's imprinted in her being is this calm. So she will always have a place to go home to. And so like she'll know that. And so it's just really interesting to me to hear this, like how much do I support her to be able to have an embodied experience for as long as I can? You know, and I know that's a big, tall ask as a parent. Like there's a lot of pressure we put on ourselves, but when I read it, it's like how to keep that integration there versus at what point, I guess I'm wondering for each of us, like, did we experience that separation along the way like that? Because our childhood experience, you start out being so integrated and embodied and then at some point you're told like, oh, you can't have those feelings anymore. And we start that separation off. So it's like so much of the journey that we're all talking about is coming back home to ourselves, I think. So the language of homeless, I think, is so interesting because I just haven't thought about it like that before. Do you feel like in your own story there was a moment of that road sort of diverging? Yeah, I think about like preteen, early when you start to feel like, what are these sensations I have? And there's no one here to talk to about this. And then I'm in youth group. And it's like, all those things we talked about, I think a little bit last season, a bit about like the sex monster and what do I do with this. And so how, as we go forward, and I think to like, just my lens is so like intentional about going forward is how do I help facilitate space so that that integration stays true for my daughter instead of being like, Oh, now that you're 13, you're having these feelings. We need to hold that back. And we're mm -hmm. going to like put this over here until you have a ring on your finger and that. And it's like, no, I want to help you explore and know this is normal and natural and keep those things intact. I remember when I was in fifth grade, that was the first year of like having girlfriends, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, and I had liked girls for a long time, but there was this one girl that was my girlfriend. Her name was Crystal. And, uh, we're still friends on Facebook Love and, uh, <laughs> but I don't know, I can't believe this is coming up on the show, but there was a whole lot of pressure. Like her friends would always come to me and be like, Crystal really wants to kiss you. Mm -hmm. and I never kissed a girl. I was in fifth grade, you know, but I also already had the knowledge that my brother's first kiss was when he was in fourth grade. Uh -oh. And so my older brother, he's four years older. And so I remember like sleeping in his room one night on the floor and just asking him like, my girlfriend really wants to kiss me, but I don't, I don't know what to do about it. You know? <laughs> and um, asking for advice. But I remember we went on a field trip and getting off the bus, I was like sitting in the back of the bus and 
and she was a few rows ahead of me because you don't sit with your girlfriend, you know, <laughs> in fifth grade. And I was walking past her to get off the bus and she tackled me wow. onto a seat and she kissed me. Whoa. Yes. And I, Way I had, to go, Crystal. so I don't know where. Well, did that freak you out? Yes. So it okay. created in me one, I got, I was really angry. Yeah. Mm. Um, you didn't have permission. That, oh, that's yeah. true. But it was also yeah. like. I had already felt all of this fear around this, this thing that had built up. So I'm saying that to say, like, I don't know the moment where the road diverged for me, but I, I do remember that as a moment where I realized, like, I feel shame around that, that I feel fear around that. I feel like that's something I'm not supposed to experience or, you know, I knew that there was something about it that didn't feel okay. But the flip side of that is then as we moved into sixth, seventh, eighth grade and everybody's beginning to have like sexual experiences I remember when people would ask me, well, when was your first kiss? I would say in fifth grade. Cause I, I didn't, my, honestly, my first time I ever kissed a girl was, I was in 10th grade, but I felt shame about the fact that I hadn't had sexual experiences at that point that I would always refer back to me like, oh yeah, fifth grade, you know, no big deal. And so I think that's an interesting place for me where like I began being aware or when I look back, that's when I know that I was aware of there was some reason to feel shame around my body around attraction to other people. Like that would be the place I would reference back to. I remember in sixth grade, I spent the weekend with a girlfriend whose mom was working. And so like, we could kind of like run amok, you know, for the weekend or whatever. And this was like this sweet time in my neighborhood where like every kid had like a bike and you could just bike a lot of places, you know? So you had like a lot of freedom on a bike. And she had a boyfriend. I can't remember who she was dating, but his friend Travis was with him. And for like the weekend, we started holding hands, tight, interdigitated hand holding where like it gets so sweaty, but it's like so exhilarating, you know? And like, you know, at the time he had a reputation for being like a little bit of a rebel, like he broke a lot of rules, you know? And so like, I knew that like, this can really go anywhere, you know, cause like I was a rule follower, but I thought he was so cute. And this was like my first real interaction with a boy that seemed to like me and wanted to like touch me. And I thought it was thrilling. <laughs> and then I remember he asked if I would meet him at this lake, Sandalwood Lake at like 6 PM. And so it was like Sunday night. I think it was like the end of the weekend, you know? So we'd been like handholding for like an intense 48 hours, basically. <laughs> And slut. Um, and so I remember like biking on my huffy and we get to like (laughs) Sandalwood Lake and we're both leaning over our our handlebars and like, he's, I know he's going to go in for a kiss. And then like, he sticks his tongue in my mouth. And I, I remember the sensation of it feeling like slimy and like confusing, but it wasn't like bad. It was just like, what's happening. And like, you're just kind of like twisting your tongue around and like it started to rain. It started to rain. And so we decided we needed to go home. And so we just like literally pivoted. We both did a 180 and just like biked home. And then for like 10 years, I proceeded to lie that that kiss didn't really happen like that. That like I closed my teeth and blocked his tongue. And like somehow that made me more pure. And I would tell that story like through my mid twenties because I had a lot of shame Mm. about like, I probably shouldn't have done that. Even though like it was not a bad experience. He didn't like force himself on me. Like it was actually exhilarating, but I had no context for how that could be good. 
the context I had, because I'd already started like being in youth group and being around people who were like, sex is bad, sex is for marriage, don't be the chewed up piece of gum, like all those stories were in my head. Don't be the paper that's glued to the other paper and you tear that paper apart. Like all of that was so visceral that like, I, I'm trying to remember if this is true, but I think, I think I like said my first kiss was when I was 21 with my first college boyfriend, my senior year of college. And that just actually isn't true. So for any of those of you that are listening that you're like, Latifa lied to me for 15 years, I did. But it was because (laughs) I felt so much shame. Mm -hmm. I was like, I have to cut that part of Latifa off that said, Travis was a really good hang. He was a good guy. And that was a sweet first experience that I like had never owned. I feel like I I just like, I really was relating to you. And I'm like, why did I do that? And I did that because I was told that that part of me was ungodly. That part of me was not correct, was not in like the host of the host of the heavenlies that was going to be singing perpetual boring worship for the rest of her life. You know, like, I just like, I so wanted to be good. You know, I used to like spin the line that it was really good that no boys ever really liked me or tried to kiss me before I was 21 because who knows what I would have done. Like I had a story of myself that was like a maniac inside that like, you know, good thing I had no opportunity to do all the wrong things, you know, and I look at that so differently now. And like I want so differently for our future kiddo, like to have the freedom to explore with understand consent and safety and no shame you know, we've seen it on the sonogram. He has a penis. Like, I hope that he has a good relationship with that part of his body, not an ashamed part of a relationship. And so it's like, how do I protect him from that is like a really hard question, but something I care really deeply about because it wasn't like I talked about it with my parents. Like I got it from my community. I got it from everything around me. Mm Mm-hmm. It was saturated everywhere. It's osmosis. I think I was going to say the thing you said too is, is like, it's not just that like we were told sex is bad, sex is wrong, sex is evil, sex is whatever. It was also that we were never told that good things could be exhilarating. So like for me, just as soon as you said the word exhilarating, I was like, well, yeah, that's enough to say this must be off limits then, Mm. you know, like soda tastes amazing. I'm not supposed to drink that candy tastes amazing. I'm not supposed to eat that. Anything that was like exciting or exhilarating was probably not for me. I was set apart for the boring eternal worship thing you mentioned, you know, like that's, it's interesting how our relationship, even to things that feel really good must not be good. You know, this is so interesting to me. I appreciate you bringing this up because I am thinking back to all these different experiences I had mostly, I'd say like high school with different, really good young men. And because I was just so deep in the youth group these guys would show interest, but like actually show interest in who I was, like not just like, let's just make out or whatever, but were like deeply caring of me, but because they weren't Christians, yeah, I would end up like our conversations would be like me, like evangelizing to them. Totally. And somehow they would stick around for a while. They really liked you. Yeah, they did. And I like, honestly, I actually found a, um, a note from one of these guys would like that he wrote when I went to college and how much he, ca- and this is like years later, like that he wrote this you know, like a notebook, you know, just this really heartfelt note to me about how much he cared for me. Like I had several genuine connections with different guys, but I never let myself experience the fullness of what it could be. And I just mean that in the sense of like exploring, making out, you know, like, but there was one boyfriend that I would call my boyfriend because he went to youth group. And honestly, like we didn't have that great of a connection. Like, but it was so funny because it was within the context that was approved 
So we dated for like six months, went to prom, did the things. But I think about these other guys that I'm like, oh, there are these threads that even one of these guys ran into my parents a few years ago and was like, you know what? Like, I love my wife, but like your daughter really meant a lot to me. She is really, and it's like, gosh, that's 20 some years later. But I just felt so held back because of like what we were swimming in that I just look back and think like, gosh, what a different experience to, to enjoy, to allow myself to just be present to that. And it just makes me wonder how would I have gone into my marriage, my first marriage differently. Yeah. Steve, Becky, do y'all have memories of where sex became homeless for you? If it did, you know, intercourse was always off limits. But I had that completely bifurcated in my mind. Everything else was great and I enjoyed it. And so I'm I'm sitting there thinking, I haven't talked much yet on the, on the episode, but I'm trying to, did sex become homeless for me in a way? Maybe, maybe. And, and partly I'm older. I mean, I, I was a youth pastor in purity culture. I, I really wasn't involved in youth group. I never went to youth group growing up. So I loved I mean, in college, I remember there was this one girl that just a bunch of different times, we'd just find each other at parties and just make out. And that's about all we did. And I think it was really fine for both of us. Sounds fun. Like she was, I think, fine with it. I was fine with it. It was fun. She was a great kisser. (laughs) I can still see her face. And we would just find each other. I don't remember ever talking to her otherwise. (laughs) Now, maybe I'm like, maybe I'm the story about the jerk that, you know, (laughs) that only made out. I was, you know, but so... I definitely, though, I mean, there was one time, like sort of after in college, I had this really spiritual experience and then I sort of had my senior year of college and then I was kind of dating this woman and I had really strict boundaries about what I would do and not do. And I think she was really confused by that, you know, and now I look back and sort of go, what? So I think mine came late. My weird boundaries and homelessness came late. It came after the spiritual experience. But I will say this. I came back to college because my experience was in the summer. came back to college and I was so terrified that I would fall back into all my old stuff, Mm. which would then nullify my really genuinely good experience. So I would say maybe, maybe that's, I'm talking myself into answering the question. Maybe that's when it really did become homeless mm-hmm. because. Like your sexuality would mm-hmm. like repurpose your, like your spiritual conversion. Is that what you're saying? Or getting drunk or any number yeah, of behaviors. Yeah, I okay. was terrified because the experience I had was genuine, real. And I really, I loved it. It was meaningful. Still, I look back and it was very meaningful. And I, as a person without a mentor or without anyone to talk to about it, no one was there to go, you know, you are who you are and you had this experience and it's part of who you are now. You can't lose that. You know, oh, I was just trying to police my way yeah. to keeping this valuable experience by not doing these behaviors that I was sure would take me away from that experience. And so that, yeah, for me, that's when that happened. Hmm. And even then, you know, honestly, even dating Mary, like, I just had really rigid boundaries around physical stuff because for the same reason. How, and and it wasn't healthy though. Yeah. How did we, because I did this too. It's like, how did we end up giving permission to other people to take God from us or to take spirituality mm-hmm. away from mm-hmm. us when we've all probably around this table had 
compelling spiritual experiences that are intimate. And then somehow I'm giving somebody who doesn't know me permission to say, well, that's not authentic or that's no longer with you based on whatever other desire is happening in you or whatever behavior has happened to you. Like, why do we do that? Well, I think it would be really easy if it was just one person that was saying something and then we could say, well, that's bullshit, you know, (laughs) but it's just in the system. It's in the air. It's in the, you know, and that's just true. That's a sociological truth. No matter what group you grew up in, you grew up believing certain things implicitly and then you have to unpack it. And really, and that's what this podcast is a lot about is unpacking the implicit mores and norms that you turned into the spiritual values of the Bible. But really, it's just so, you know, most of them are just sociological norms and mores that we learn by osmosis, as was said earlier, you know, and, yeah. and, and that's a lot of deconstruction is, I mean, I just met with a dude in his 50s, divorced. And I hadn't talked to him for a while and I knew he was kind of seeing someone, you know, and we're having a beer together. And then he kind of sheepishly admits that he's having sex, you know, (laughs) to me. And I'm like, that's fantastic. And he was a little surprised, but he wasn't surprised. And then he went on to really tell me about (laughs) it. And I'm like, no, no, it was great. Um, it, be, it, about healing, the That's healing right, yes. that has happened. Yeah, I can imagine for him in his fifties and same exact story. So and probably the further healing from being able to say that to you, yeah, and it be received, and you know that surprising yeah. response. You know, to well, me it, that would be tremendously healing in and of itself. I kept because you, I could tell like he, he wasn't sure, man. Like he's, he's, it was like I'm doing this and I'm enjoying it, but it's probably bad. You know. Yeah. Um, and, and he probably I was like, thought you because of your role are some sort yeah, of shame dealer yeah. and you didn't deal shame in that moment. Well, you know? what, what I did was I said, okay, now let's look at, let's look, use, use biblical language. <laughs> What's the fruit of that in your life? He goes, well, I feel a lot better about myself. I don't beat myself up all the time. I don't, you know, I feel really healthy. And, and so I'm like, what if that was the gauge yeah. <laughs> of your <laughs> how you're doing uh, versus rule breaking or rule following. And that is, I've realized like that's my gauge. Is it producing wholeness, peace, life, joy, and sometimes pain, you know, you know, but like, or, you know, or are you just wrapped in guilt, which is what I was coming back from that experience back in college, you know, I think TV, you asked the question of like, why do we let people, take this from us. And I think my answer in that moment was like, well, I don't think I ever knew it was mine. Like, I don't think that I, that I I felt ownership over my sexuality or my spirituality in a way that I was ever not looking for someone else to tell me which way to move. You know, I don't remember feeling that agency until now. Like I feel it now. And that's, that's part of why I think what jumps out of me about that real capacity is like when he refers to it consistently as my sex, it's like, oh, this is mine. And and I would say that even to folks who I, I can imagine folks, I know people who are listening to this show and waiting for marriage. And I also want to say that's perfectly good yeah. if, yeah, if that, because choice. it's your sex, like that's your mm-hmm. thing. I, what I wouldn't want is for people to listen to this and be like, oh man, to feel shamed into something right. either. Yeah. You know, good, like yeah. I, I think the whole point yeah. here is that, you like, said that. that your path is your path and that's, and, and trust yourself enough to follow that path, whatever that is, you know, 
I wish someone had given me that gift of permission, which we've talked about of like permission to just like examine for myself and trust myself what's right and right for me. It's hard to say, like when I look back at my past, if it had gone differently and I had chosen to trust myself or my intuition about certain guys that I really liked that also likes me back that I like overruled because they weren't Christians that treated me with kindness and respect. And then I look at like the barometer, which I made my choices, big life choices were just steeped in, is this the correct choice for like my evangelical Christian life? It's hard to say like, yeah, if I went back and redid it all and I just trusted myself that everything would have worked out. Like I, I think that would be a foolish statement. But I was having a conversation with somebody, a friend of mine, who we reconnected again after a couple of years. And he was saying that, like, he's just doubling down on his certainty and his faith. And it brings him a lot of security and a lot of comfort. And I told him, I was like, I'm so glad that that's happening for you. And I was like, it's so interesting because when I look at my life now, when I double down on my certainty about, like, who God was and you know, he was definitely a heathen and like how he decided I needed to be living. And these are the rules I needed to live by. My body was the most physically sick. Emotionally, I was the most distraught. Mm -hmm. My career was going fine. It wasn't like all shit, but like I had good friends, but like I was the most disconnected from myself and my body. I probably had ever been for like matters of survival. And as I've gotten less certain about how to define who God is and what God's idea for healthy living is for me outside of just like staying connected to myself and my neighbor and the divine and the earth. I'm so much more at peace. I'm trusting myself because I also believe that God is in me. Like God moves within me, like God moves it within you. And we're both reflecting that to each other. We have things to learn. And so like, I was just telling him, I was like, that's so the opposite of my experience, but I don't want to not validate that that is giving you something right now, you Mm -hmm. know? And so like, I just think that like, we're really touching on intuition Mm -hmm. and trust and connectedness to the body. And like, I was even trying to think about what I think about the concept of sin, like, because that drives a lot of the motivation. Like, I don't want to be a sinner. I don't want to be separated from God kind of language. And I'm realizing for me, I think sin is just rooted in disconnection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Like disconnecting from myself or from my neighbor or from God or from the earth usually breeds hiding and like shame Mm -hmm. and all these things. And so like, that's kind of been the thing, the barometer now I've been asking myself, Mm -hmm. like we talked about raw and tove in season one and two and three, like, is this perpetuating more life or is this like what feels like just blanketed death, you know? And so like, to me, connection perpetuates more life. You said something earlier about why did we give this? Yeah. And I think when we have a concept that we come into this world as sinners, needing an outside entity to save us from something that we never created in the first place, I think what it does is it makes us dependent on what the outside entity, how it can save us from this inherent part of us that we didn't know we had. Mm. And I think some of this goes back to, there's a book I'm reading right now, and I'm sure I'll reference it during the season, but it's about, and it really goes back to the difference between Augustine and Pelagius. And one thought, we are born sinners, 
And the other thought that we are born with the goodness of God already in us. So every child is born bearing this beautiful image of God. And the other was every child is born with bearing sin because the act of sex cannot happen without there being sin present. Ugh. I guess I remember and, that thinking. So I, I, I never say, thought of it like that. Yeah, yes, and remember, so that's yeah. part of that's some Whoa. of the roots and elements of where we got Christianity. That we need to be saved. We need a savior, and so some of this is that is something that we have all breathed in this world, and that's where I I do believe that culture and family of origin are most influenced by religion, or I want to say spirituality. But I think what happened at some point, we lost the connection with spirituality being an inherent part of us. And we thought it was something we had to gain by reaching out towards in order to give us something. So every client that comes in my office, the first meeting, what I say to them is, I don't have the answers. Everything you need to heal is already inside of you. Yeah. Our job is to stay present and help you remember and put it back together so that you can be the fullest human being that you were created. I'm not going to give you anything yeah. other than presence. And I'm, we're going to ask questions and we're going to find what is actually the essence of who you are. So good. And I think to the question of when did my, I mean, my own, and I think my own story, I, we were talking about, you know, when did it get separated from me? What I know for sure is having abuse at such a young age, yeah. I became homeless mm. from something very early on. And I had to recreate a sense of home, quote unquote, in order to do all the exploring I did. And, and it helped in some ways, it helped me a little bit, but it also harmed me because I wasn't rooted and grounded in something that held consent and also held the freedom to explore. It was more, I was desperately grasping for something mm. to feel alive and mm. not that sinner, I want to say. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just important to recognize so often we're living out of something that we've inherited, not necessarily that we've chosen. And this week, the night before we came, I was going through all my old yearbooks, all the way back to junior high. And I opened up these yearbooks and I'm reading some of these inscriptions in there of people, what they've written to my seventh, sixth, seventh, eighth grade self. And I was just like in tears almost. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I remember her. I remember her. She was kind. She was inquisitive. She was compassionate. And Tim Burke, bless his sweetheart. I have no idea who he is and where he's at. So you can leave his name in here because I I'm, don't think I'm hurting him or anything. But Tim Burke wrote in my seventh grade journal to the kindest, sweetest, mm. best kisser. That girl. I've ever experienced. Now, he's seventh, seventh grade. grade. <laughs> you know what, though? That's, that's awesome. But I took it to the that's bank. And it was compliment. like that moment where I just that, took it to the bank and I went... Oh, sweet, Tim. I remember making out and, and behind the bleachers. Yeah. Oh, I remember making out in the... With this faceless blur that I <laughs> yes. can't remember. I can't remember. But I, I'd totally forgotten until I read that inscription. Sweet. And what I realized when we're having this conversation and I'm listening to everything is those sweet moments gave me a glimpse of who I was. Mm -hmm. And I don't know 
to your point, I don't know who I would be if I had walked another road. Yeah. I don't know. But just because I, the road I walked had so many different lessons, will I embrace the lessons to return me to the deepest essence of who I truly am mm -hmm. versus trying to keep that homeless one fed? Wow. And I, I just wonder, I wonder for all of us. And I think for my sex is about me getting to remember that I was made in the image of someone that didn't see sex as off limits or taboo or shame filled, mm -hmm. saw it as this place that held incredible potential of life, incredible possibility of pain and entrusted me to get to explore. Mm. I love the way that you are so intentional about saying remember, like not just remember the way that we think of that word, but, but the reattaching. I was thinking, I just, I read Richard Rohr's universal Christ and he talks in there about religion. If you get down to the root of that word is about re ligamenting, like reattaching the ligaments of who we are, I guess, or of who we're intended to be. And it's so not what religion <laughs> has been in most of our experience so far, but it feels like dismembering. Yeah. Like. Yeah. I mean, you used the word bloody amputees earlier and that feels truer to mm -hmm. me of like the experience so many of us have had. And that's not to make the church the villain. I'm not saying that it's just this idea of, of sort of recalling and getting to the, the essence and the heart of what it should be. And it should be a, a space and a, and a practice for re-ligamenting, reattaching, remembering mm -hmm. ourselves to wholeness, to the wholeness for which we were intended. I think that's just a beautiful well, image. I remember studying the creation story with a dear friend of mine and the root word for male and female, it's to remember and to pierce. And so mm -hmm. like when you think about male and female, we take the binary, but there's a deeper such a deeper meaning about our humanity in there. One of those pieces being to remember. And that's why how often they had ritual that they came back to and why it was to remember like, Oh, I opened the red sea for you. Like let's remember the ways that we were in community together. That's why Sabbath has celebrated these different pieces. And so as we're talking about that wholeness piece, we have to remember those parts. And this is what I think about for my little, what I was trying to articulate earlier is like, I want her to grow up with the knowing of like, you are a divine being and how do I help you learn and grow up knowing that? Because I was raised with the other knowing of the sinner, you know? And so to come later in life to know like, no, I am a divine being like has we articulating that. How can I help her stay in touch with that knowing and start from there to have a different starting point? This episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. All the music you heard in this episode was composed, produced, and licensed by the fine folks at blue.sessions.com. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcast. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now... 
Here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. I know as somebody who made a lot of changes after going through my divorce and even before my divorce, I always still felt like the same person inside. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think like it can be so hard to be vulnerable and say like, I'm thinking differently now, right? About faith or spirituality or sexuality, but I'm still me. Like I still hold the same values. Like that didn't change just because my belief about marriage changed or my belief about God and sex might be a little different. 